We are returning back to Acts, Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 4 through 25 this morning as we begin to see uh, the gospel of Jesus go beyond the city of Jerusalem. Everything in Acts up to this point from Acts 1 to Acts, uh, the end of Acts 7, beginning of Acts chapter 8, has all taken place in the city of Jerusalem. And now there is a, a shift, there's a turning point in the narrative of Acts where the gospel now moves beyond the walls of the city into the surrounding area. Now, uh, just to remind you all of what has happened most recently in the course of Acts, um, I feel like, like it's like a recap show uh, or recap, you know, for, like before like Batman or something like the old Batman TV series with Adam West. You know, when last we left the Cape Crusader, he was, um, but when last we left our merry band of disciples, um, they were not so merry. Okay, uh, Stephen, one of the early servants of the church, had just been uh, stoned publicly, killed for his uh, uh, proclamation that Jesus was the Christ. And after that, we were introduced uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 uh, to a man named Saul, who later we will come to know better as Paul, a man with two different names, but Saul who approved of Stephen's execution and who led the charge to persecute the church in Jerusalem, having people uh, arrested uh, for their faith in Jesus, going in house to house, as we read in Acts chapter 3, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so now we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, as the story continues, uh, king in on uh, the second of one of those first servants in the church. First was Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and now we have here Philip as he takes the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Would you join me this morning standing in honor of reading God's word together? Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Luke, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic." When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing 
of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. So here we are at this pivotal point in Acts, in the history of the church, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is, for the first time, leaving the boundaries of the city, the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, and filtering into the surrounding areas. As we look at this verse this morning, I want us, or this passage this morning, here's kind of what I want to do. I want to work through and just kind of explain what's going on in the passage and then spend a longer portion of time at the beginning, at the end of the sermon, excuse me, applying the passage in several different ways. Okay. So normally we kind of explain a little, apply a little, explain a little, apply a little. We're going to explain a lot and then apply a lot in two big chunks today. Okay. So now that you know where we're going, Let's get on the road. First, in verses 4 through 8, we see, uh, as we said before, for the first time, the gospel going beyond Jerusalem. The gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. And it goes beyond Jerusalem, in, and we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and also in verse 4, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, uh, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They remained there in Jerusalem. And we read, uh, as we began in our uh, passage this morning in verse 4, now those who were scattered, scattered out of the city because of the persecution, went about preaching the word. And we see Philip in verse 5 going to Samaria. You'll recall from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' parting words to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Seen that. And then he says, In all Judea and Samaria, beginning to see that, and to the ends of the earth as well. Here in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, the words of Jesus, his, his parting words to the disciples are being fulfilled in what is happening. Note here that God is using the persecution in Jerusalem to move the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem to fulfill what Jesus said would take place there in Acts 1.8. Now, some have said and looked at uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4 or so, and said that, that, uh, that at this point, God is sending persecution to the believers in Jerusalem as punishment for those disciples not having taken the gospel outside of Jerusalem sooner. Because they haven't gone to Judea, because they haven't gone to Samaria, yet God sends persecution to punish them, to make them move. But friends, there's really quite literally nothing in the text to indicate that this is true, that the scattering of the disciples is a punishment of the Lord. Instead, we should see here God using the attempts uh, by, by Saul and others in the city of Jerusalem, the attempts by them to silence believers in Jerusalem to actually have the opposite effect. God often does things like this, where he uses the ill, the evil intentions of a person or a party to bring about his good purposes. Believers in Jerusalem are not silenced by persecution, but instead they're scattered abroad where they go about sharing the gospel as they go. Now, very likely the majority of the preaching of the gospel that these uh, believers that are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria are doing 
Their preaching is not happening in pulpits or on street corners or in major forums. More likely, it's happening in personal conversations in the marketplace. And as people are dealing with one another, uh, as they go about their way and try to, to make a life for themselves and provide for themselves in the different places that they go. One pastor has said that in, in them being scattered, what is happening is that the believers are gossiping the gospel. I, I love that image. I love that image. Right? You, you've got people who've got some really juicy stuff that they want to share with other folks. Like, y'all can't believe you know, what's happening in Jerusalem. Right? And talking about Jesus, the Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. So we see this gospel going beyond Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, these two regions. But we also see it in verses 5 through 8 of this passage, going to non-Jews in Samaria going to non-Jews in Samaria. Up to this point, the entire church of believers in Jerusalem are made up of believing Jews, Jews who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And now for the first time, the gospel is going to people who are not Jewish. Verse five introduces us to Philip, who we saw again in Acts chapter six, verse five, along with Stephen and five others being selected as servants in the church. Philip going during this scattering time to the region of Samaria. Now, many of you may know much about Samaria, but uh, as just by way of refresher, th- these are some facts, some background about the region of Samaria. Samaria is the region north of Judea, uh, Judea of which Jerusalem being the capital, north of Judea and south of Galilee. Galilee is further north near the Sea of Galilee, ironically, where Jesus grew up and did most of his ministry. So you've got Galilee in the north, uh, Judea a little bit further south, and Samaria here in the middle. Now, uh, uh, Samaria was synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, you'll recall after uh, King Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel split into two. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And the two kingdoms are never reunited. And when Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians in 721 BC, the Assyrians took and dispersed some 27,000 Jews from that kingdom around the Assyrian Empire. So they scattered them uh, just all over kind of the known world at the time. That was the way Assyria dealt with their conquered enemies. They didn't want anybody to be close to each other to be able to foment rebellion or anything like that. So they just take them and they, they scatter them all over the place. Not all of them, however, were dispersed by the Assyrians. Some remained in that area, in that region of Samaria. And the remaining ones uh, from, from the now conquered northern kingdom of Israel, those who remained intermarried with surrounding native pagans. So they married outside of uh, the, the Hebrew ethnicity. They intermarried. And in intermarrying with native surrounding pagan people, uh, the Samaritans, those who stayed in the, the, uh, the northern kingdom uh, area, began to incorporate pagan worship in their worship of the one true God. Now, the Samaritans, by the time of the New Testament, in Jesus' day, had abandoned, uh, graciously, or by God's grace, had abandoned all of their pagan syncretism and had embraced uh, the, the God of the Scriptures again. However, they didn't have all of the Scriptures. They used only the Torah, only the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Samaritans had their own temple where sacrifices were made to the Lord. But generally, they were despised by the Jews who returned from the Babylonian captivity, being seen as half-breeds and religious adulterers. 
You may be familiar with the fact that Jesus himself regularly ministered to people in Samaria and in the region of Samaria. In John 4, he sits down at a well next to a woman in Samaria and talks to her about the Messiah. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals a Samaritan leper. In Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan to give an example of one who loves like a neighbor. And before Jesus ascends to heaven, he informs the disciples that they will be witnesses to his crucifixion and resurrection in Jerusalem and in all Judea, the southern kingdom, remaining southern kingdom, and Samaria, the former northern kingdom of Israel, and even to the ends of the earth. So there we find in verse 5, Philip being uh, scattered out of the walls of Jerusalem, going into the area of Samaria. And he, as verse 5 says, preaches to the Samaritans the Christ. Verse 5 says, Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, Samaritans, like Jews, had an expectation of a prophet like Moses, who would come to restore all things and to teach them the law of God perfectly. Jesus, in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4, reveals to the woman that he himself is the Messiah. He's the hoped for one. The one that Jews and Samaritans both have been waiting for, been hoping for, been longing would come. Philip likewise preaches to those Samaritans uh, in the region where he goes that their hope for a restorer, for a Messiah, has been realized in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who is this Messiah, crucified for, for sins, raised from the dead, ascended now into heaven. And Philip, like the apostles earlier in Acts and several places in Acts, is empowered with the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, to heal various sicknesses, to give uh, all, all in order to give validation to the the message that he is preaching. He's preaching the Christ, and this gospel message is attended with wonders and signs that no one else could perform, so as to say the gospel that he is preaching is true, and it is powerful. The result of the news of salvation in the name of Jesus in Samaria, this Jesus who heals diseases uh, uh, and, and who brings uh, uh, liberation to those who are oppressed by uh, uh, evil spirits, this Jesus who died for sins and was raised from the dead, as this gospel message is preached in Samaria, we find in verse 8 that there was much joy in that city. As the gospel goes out beyond the walls of Jerusalem, it is met with acceptance and belief and repentance by those who hear it, and also great joy as a result of it. But then in verses 9 through 24, Luke, as he often does, gives us a contrast. He gives us a contrast of true and false believers. Luke likes to do this, in, uh, at least in the book of Acts, where he'll kind of uh, make a point in the narrative, and then he'll go to give two historical examples, one uh, on the positive side, one on the negative. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, uh, at the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this sermon, and, uh, or, uh, excuse me, before Peter preaches the sermon, uh, all of the disciples begin speaking in languages, other known languages of the world, as the Holy Spirit uh, empowers them to do so. Uh, and, and the people of Jerusalem are all awestruck by what's happening in the lives of the disciples. He- people in Jerusalem are hearing the gospel and the things of God being spoken, being preached, proclaimed, in languages that they knew that were not native to Jerusalem. And half of the city is going, man, this is amazing. What does all of this mean? And the other half of the city is going, well, these guys are just drunk. It's only nine in the morning. 
And they're already all sauced up. So examples of those who are receptive to God's work and, and, and skeptical of what is going on. Then we get to the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5. And there we see uh, Luke talking about the generosity that's happening in the church. We have a positive example of generosity in Barnabas, who sells a field and gives all of the money to the disciples and for the ministry of the church. And a negative example in Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a piece of property and give some money to the church, uh, uh, saying that it's all of the proceeds of the land, but actually having withheld some for themselves. And they become a negative example of those that lie to the church or put on airs about their generosity in church and God strikes them dead. So deal with that in your philosophy of tithing and generosity. Okay. And now, and now Luke gives us another contrast as the gospel now goes to Samaria. We have a contrast of true and of false believers in verses nine through 17. We see the blessing of the gospel for true believers, the blessing of the gospel to true believers. Immediately in verse nine, we are introduced to this character, Simon, a magician in Samaria who has practiced magic for a long time, who calls himself and is called by those in Samaria, the, the great one, the one who is called great and who himself has developed respect and a following among the Samaritans as though he himself were a God. This guy, Simon is a, is a cult leader par excellence. Okay. Now, Simon's magic is of the dark, demonic sort. It's not just sleight of hand, um, illusionist kind of stuff. He is dabbling in dark, occultic powers. And by his magic arts, he is said to have amazed, said to have amazed many people in Samaria, captivating their attention. But catch this, as the gospel gets to Samaria through Philip's preaching of the, as verse 12 says, of the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, this gospel that Philip preaches instantly cuts through Simon's facade of magic. The truth of the gospel immediately slices through this, this facade of, of occultic dark powers. The, when the truth comes on the scene, all falsehood is made known. When you shine a light in a dark room, the shadows flee. And that's that's what's happening when Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria. Funny how the truth does this, isn't it? When the truth of the gospel and the true power of God are demonstrated in Samaria, every other power that is not from God all at once loses its luster. The spell of sin and Satan is broken by the truth of Christ in Samaria and people receive it with joy. So compelling is the gospel that Philip preaches that both men and women, we read, believe in Christ. They repent of their sins. They're baptized in connection with their belief in Jesus. And in this gospel, even Simon, the magician, even Simon himself is said to have believed and been baptized in conjunction with his awe of Philip's power and, and power in the Holy Spirit. This magician, Simon, is seeing things done in Samaria by the power of the Holy Spirit that he himself, with his occultic powers, has never been able to do. And he's awestruck by it. He wants in on this game. And so he supposedly believes and is baptized and begins following Philip around. Meanwhile, word of what's happening in Samaria makes it back to Jerusalem and to the apostles in Jerusalem about this gospel movement in Samaria. And so the disciples all together in Jerusalem determined to send Peter and John to go to Samaria to pray for the Samaritans, that they might receive the confirmation of their salvation and of the gospel, which is the Holy Spirit. 
We know, Christian, you know, that the seal of your salvation, the down payment uh, of your uh, eternal salvation and eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and new earth is the Holy Spirit living in you now. Okay? And so Peter and John have heard that the Holy Spirit has not arrived in the way that it arrived in Acts chapter 2. And so they're going to say, hey, this gospel is true. The, the, the pronouncements of faith that people in, in Samaria are making are right. We, we need, they need the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so they go there to pray that the Holy Spirit might fall on them to give validation of the gospel message. Now, when Peter and John pray for these Samaritan believers, the Holy Spirit falls on them in a manner like like he did in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Very dramatic. In fact, the the Spirit falling on the Samaritans in the same way that he fell on the the disciples in Acts chapter 2 has caused some to call this event here in Acts chapter 8 the Samaritan Pentecost. Now, Peter and John's prayer for the Holy Spirit to fall does not necessarily discount that the Holy Spirit had not already been moving and working in the hearts of the Samaritan believers. Certainly, the Holy Spirit had to have been working in the hearts of Samaritan believers to convince them of the truth of Christ. But his falling in a dramatic form in physical manifestation has not yet happened. And so the apostles come, uh, Peter and John, to pray for the Samaritans in order that the Holy Spirit might fall and give a physical manifestation of the real conversion that has already happened. In fact, a similar event will take place also in Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit falls on those in Cornelius' house, when those very first Gentiles hear the gospel as well. Now, what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 with the Holy Spirit falling, these are not to be understood as, uh, as prescriptive or normative events. The Holy Spirit does not fall in physical manifestation like this every time a new person, uh, a person comes to Christ for the first time. Okay, uh, the, the vast majority of times, the Holy Spirit comes very quietly, very uh, almost subtly, but, but uh, even sometimes imperceptibly, but, but all the same um, in a very real fashion uh, when you trust in Jesus. So we ought not to try to recreate Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10 in the life of the church with the Holy Spirit falling every week. This is something that God is doing a, a special way at a special time in the life of the kingdom, in the life of the church. As it is growing, he is validating its growth in, in physical and visible ways through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But now that God's word is completed, Old and New Testament, we don't need this physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit every time we gather to know that God is working among us. For certainly we have his word and he has already validated what is going on. But to sum up, this is a wonderful scene that demonstrates, so the, the reception of the gospel by those and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans, a wonderful scene that demonstrates the blessing that comes with believing the gospel, the blessing that comes with turning from sin, the blessing that comes with trusting the Lord Jesus as Savior. All at once, there is now a Samaritan church. Prior to this point, there was only a Jerusalem church. Now, there's a Samaritan church. And a people who were once taken far from God have now been brought near again by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See the blessing of the gospel for those who truly believe. Then Luke points to us in verses 18 through 24, the curse among those who are false believers. The curse of false belief. We said there's a contrast. So on the one hand, the, the, the good image or the, the positive image of those who have trusted Jesus sincerely and received the Holy Spirit. And now on the other hand, 
We have the, the, the curse of those who believe falsely or who, who, who believe uh, pretentiously. Now, where we can rejoice with those in Samaria who believed and received the blessing of the gospel, we likewise ought to lament the curse of one in Samaria who believed falsely. Simon the magician, who just verses before would seem to have made a profession of faith in Jesus and was baptized, sees the Holy Spirit being received by the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he wants this power too. In fact, he offers, in verse 20, he offers Peter and John money in exchange for this power. He says, hey, Peter, John, this is cool stuff, man. Like, I've got, I've got uh, 20 shekels. I'll give, you, I'll give you this silver if you guys just give me that power. So that whoever I, I'll lay my hands on people and they'll get the Holy Spirit too, right? That'll be awesome. So I'll just give you a little bit of money. You give me this power. You know, uh, uh, it's a win-win situation. Everyone goes home happy. So just as illusionists today, magicians today, will sell their sleight of hand techniques and their card tricks to other magicians, so also did ancient magicians like Simon buy and sell their spells, their incantations, their tricks. The fact that Simon is trying here to offer money to Peter and John to receive the power to manipulate the Holy Spirit shows us that he really has no clue about the power of God and he has no respect for the gospel itself. Simon's only in it for what he can get for himself. He thinks it's a trick to learn that the Holy Spirit is a power to manipulate. He, he seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit is a genie in a bottle who serves at the whim of its human master. Simon says, I want a genie in a bottle too. Here's some money for it. Very quickly, Peter, and rightly so, soundly rejects the offer of money for the Holy Spirit, and he curses Simon. He says, um, he says in verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What Peter is saying in verse 20 is very emphatic. I mean, there's probably an exclamation point at the end of verse 20 in your translation of the Bible, but it almost needs to be like bolded, italicized, underlined with several exclamation points after the fact. What Peter is saying to Simon the magician is almost quite literally to hell with you and your silver. The curse continues, though. It doesn't just stop there. Peter goes on to inform Simon, in fact, that he is not saved. He says, you have no part. You have, you have nothing to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You're a fake. You're a phony. Furthermore, Peter commands Simon, the magician, to repent from his wrongful thinking, to repent from his falsified faith. Simon, the magician's spiritual state is extremely dire at this point. And, and Peter is making, with, with no equivocation, he's making that absolutely clear. Buddy, you're in a bad state. Peter says that this magician is in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity in verse 23. That is to say that Simon, the magician, has not tasted the sweetness of the Lord. Simon the magician has not been liberated from sin by truly receiving the gospel. Rather, instead, he's still saturated in the battery acid of his rebellion against God and chained to sinful and selfish desires of the flesh. Simon's response to Peter. Peter says, repent, because I see you're in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. Simon's response to Peter in verse 24 is this. He says, pray for me to the Lord then that nothing what you've said may come upon me. Simon's response is not the repentance that Peter has commanded. Simon's response is a plea for help from Peter. 
Simon wants a mediator. Simon wants someone to go to God for him to fix the problem. Perhaps, Peter, you can talk to this God on my behalf and sway him not to punish me. Notice that Peter doesn't respond to Simon. Neither does John. There's no prayer on Simon's behalf. Peter and John cannot deliver Simon from his cursed state in his sin. Friends, only Jesus can do that. Peter and John are not a mediator to go between Simon the magician and God. Jesus is the perfect mediator. Simon doesn't need these disciples who work at the behest and at the will of the Father. He doesn't need them to go to the Father for them. He needs the only one who has ever paid for his sins, who has already gone to the Father, to go to the Father for him. We never see repentance from Simon the magician. We never see or hear from Simon again. And the darkness of his lostness continues to loom over him even as this scene closes. This is the curse of unbelief. This is the curse of false belief. That, that for those who, who have said that they are a follower of Jesus but who have not truly repented, they are stuck in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. They are stuck in their lostness unless they repent of their sin and turn to Christ for aid. Now, this is how the scene closes for Simon the magician, not in a good way. But wonderfully, this is not how the Samaritan excursion ends. That's not how this whole scene ends. This whole scene ends in verse 25 with progressing mission fulfillment. As Luke wraps up this event in the history of the church, he is sure to include that as Peter and John and Philip go back to Jerusalem, they continue to preach the gospel of Jesus to this people group of Samaritans who were just previously their enemies. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews and, and that's putting it, likely, putting it lightly. They hated each other. But now the gospel has gone to Samaria. It's transformed lives. There's a church in Samaria now. The, the apostles and Philip have seen the work of the gospel amongst a people group who were previously lost. Now they're praising God for it. And they're taking that same gospel to more of that people group who are still lost. This is a wonderful way to end this scene. There we read, now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Not only in this is the mission of Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Not only is the mission of Acts 1.8 being progressively fulfilled, it's being worked out in precisely the manner Jesus said it would happen. But now Samaritans know the hope of the gospel in the Messiah that they have long waited for. And what's more, the people of God, the church, as it grows here in Samaria and in Jerusalem between the two, as it's growing in racial diversity, it already begins to look a little bit more like the vision of heaven that we have in Revelation chapter 7. A people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group surrounding the risen Jesus in eternity proclaiming salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Already, Revelation 7 is beginning to take place, is beginning to unfold. The, the church at the end of time, those surrounding the throne of Christ, who are praising Him, uh, from people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group, it's already happening in Acts chapter 8 as the Samaritans hear and receive the gospel. So that's what's happening in these verses, in, in, in this passage today. But how does it apply to us? 
I'd like to make several points of application from Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25 for us this morning. The first is this. Genuine Christians do not discriminate with the gospel. Genuine Christians do not discriminate with the gospel. If we understand Matthew 28, 18 through 20 rightly, that is the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. If we understand the Great Commission rightly, we, like Philip, will take the gospel to people who are not like us, even to people that we may have previously hated. Quite frankly, there's no room for even a hint of racial superiority among the church of Jesus Christ. Likewise, there's no room for social or economic superiority when it comes to the church and to whom we share the gospel with. And because there's no room for these prejudices, for any sense of superiority in any way, when it comes to, uh, to who we share the gospel with, there is also no room in the Christian social ethic for how we live and for how our, our lives and how we treat our neighbors, whether they're believers or not, for, for these prejudices either. If we don't discriminate with who we tell the gospel to, we don't discriminate with, with which neighbors we love. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, that Jesus tells a sworn enemy of the beaten Jewish man lying half dead in the road, the Samaritan being the only one who truly loves his neighbor. This parable that Jesus tells serves to cut at the inherent racism of Jewish people in Jesus's day. If Jesus were to tell that parable today, he might well not call it the good Samaritan, but he might well call it the good Syrian refugee. He might well call it the, the good undocumented immigrant. Jesus Christ does not die on the cross for any particular group of people, but for all sinners. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And so, real gospel Christians... Don't discriminate with the gospel. People who love Jesus don't withhold the gospel from anybody just because they look different, just because they talk different, just because their immigration status is different. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, before we were married, we took a short uh, missionary trip, missions trip, about 10 days uh, to South Africa and to a um, uh, and a city that was sort of surrounded with several different Zulu villages there in South Africa. And working at the uh, kind of Christian center that, that we were working with uh, was a white South African. His name was Erlo. He was fluent in both English and Afrikaans. And if you've never heard anybody speak in Afrikaans, man, you need to. That is a, that is a beautiful language. Erlo, uh, older guy, mid, mid late, late 50s probably, huge mutton chops, uh, was one of the most kind and compassionate men I have ever seen in my life. Loved Zulu villagers, loved the Zulu people. Now, Erlo, being a white South African, ministering to black South Africans among the Zulu, uh, those of you who are not familiar with the, uh, the, the racial tension in South Africa, even to this day, um, it's intense, to say the least, 
Arlo, this, this white man, white Christian, loves the Lord, is doing everything he can to get the gospel to these uh, black Zulu people. Erlo told us during the course of that week that there was a time in his life before he knew Christ where he hated black people, hated them, couldn't stand them. He, by his own admission, was the most racist man that he knew until the Lord changed his heart, until the gospel became clear to him. And when he received Christ as Lord, all of the beautiful benefits of the gospel began to work their way out in Erlo's life to the point where he came to a position of real, true, lasting repentance for his racism. And he knew that the gospel was not just for white people, it was for all people. And that if he was going to be a gospel man in South Africa, he had to take the gospel to people that he previously hated. People whom, because of Christ and the the work of Christ in his life, uh, that he had come to love and to love dearly. I I saw Erlo, this man who who previously said that he hated black people, weep tears uh, of sadness for the lostness uh, amongst the Zulu people that he loved and cared for. He was giving his life, working his fingers to the bone to get the gospel to these people because he knew that gospel Christians do not discriminate with the gospel. So like Philip, who takes this gospel message outside Jerusalem to Samaria, we too must not be discriminatory with the gospel. Secondly, we must preach a clearly Jesus-centered gospel to our confused world. We must preach a clearly Jesus-centered gospel to our confused world. Now, as Philip goes to Samaria, he's dealing with a people who, who already have some understanding of a Messiah, some hope for a prophet who would come. But as we read in verse 5, Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, Philip could have proclaimed to them, or Luke could have said that Philip proclaimed to them the way, or the life, or the truth, or the gospel. But instead, Philip keys, or Luke keys in on specifically who Philip was preaching. He was preaching the Christ. He was preaching something very specific. A recent Pew Research study found... That 9 and 10, uh, this study was just published this week, so you can go look for it. Found that 9 and 10 adult Americans believe in God. But out of the 9 of 10 that, that believe in God, only 56 Americans, adult Americans actually believe in the God of the Bible. Now, this might seem to you an encouraging statistic. Over half of Americans believe in the God of the Bible. Hey, that, that might be good news. But when we press further into this study we find that while 63% of the sample group identified as Christian, 63% of the group said, I'm a Christian. Now, does that mean where they're a Bible-believing, that they're actually a born-again believer, or they just affiliate with the Christian church? Uh, uh, the Pew Research Group, they don't press there. They just ask, are you a Christian? And somebody says yes, then they just check a box. So 63% of the sample group identified as Christian, but only 80% of those who identified as Christian actually said they believed in the God of the Bible. You catch that? 20% of self-identified Christians in this survey either do not believe in the God of the Bible or do not believe in God at all. The majority of which say they believe in some other higher power that is specifically not the God of the Bible. This is 20% of professing Christians in America say they believe in a God who's not the God of the Bible. This study is as fascinating to me, friends, as it is confounding. 
But what it demonstrates more than anything is that when people talk about God in America, they are just as likely to be talking about any of a number of nonspecific gods that they've conjured up in their own mind as they are the God of the Bible. And that even among those who self-profess to be Christians, there is the possibility that they don't even believe in the God of the Bible. I'm not making this up. This is Pew Research. This is a reputable research company. What this means for us, friends, is that we, as we live and minister in a world that is confused about the truth of the gospel, we cannot rely upon generic and vague descriptions of God or of Jesus in our conversations about salvation and about faith. We cannot be generic. We cannot be vague. Rather, we must be painstakingly specific about who God is, that he has created the world, that he is holy, that that he is morally, infinitely morally perfect and good. We must be painstakingly clear about the reality of sin. All of us have rebelled against this God who loves us. And for our rebellion, we deserve death and eternal punishment. We must be painstakingly clear about the biblical Jesus, who is the Son of God, God in flesh, the crucified and risen Savior, the one who gave his life to pay for the sins that deserve uh, eternal punishment, and who rose from the dead to provide hope of resurrection for all who would trust in him and no other. We must be painstakingly specific about who God is, about what our sin deserves, about who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection accomplished. We must be painstakingly specific, friends, even more so about the necessity of faith in Christ alone for salvation. Even with people who call themselves Christians. And so in light of that third point of application, we must call false believers to repentance and call false believers to real hope in Jesus. Recognize from this passage, friends, that going through the motions of affiliating with the church are not in themselves actually saving. Simon the magician is said to have believed Philip's preaching. Simon was baptized. He did all of the external things that true believers were doing in Samaria, yet with no actual change in his heart, no actual repentance of his sin. Friends, Some of you here today are in no better place than Simon. You may have walked down an aisle in church. You may have prayed a prayer with a pastor. You may have been baptized. You may be serving in the church. But you know that in your heart that you, like Simon, have never truly repented of your sin and trusted Jesus. You know that you've been going along to get along that you've been calling yourself Christian, all the while knowing you've never really professed faith in Jesus. You've never really submitted to him as Lord. You've never really repented of your sins or even seen your need to repent from your sins. Know this today, and don't mishear me. Being a moral churchgoer is no substitute for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Being a moral churchgoer who enjoys all the relationships of the church and friendliness of the congregation and good deeds of service to others, but with no real recognition of your sin before a holy God and with no real faith in Jesus is just as damning as being a magician who says he's a Christian and gets baptized because he wants to do tricks like the disciples do.
Church, the point of the gospel is not that Jesus died so you can be a kinder person. The point of the gospel is not even that Jesus died so you can be a moral person. The point of the gospel is that Jesus died to pay for your sins. And I don't care how many prayers you pray or what you give to the church or how long you've been a member of this or of any church, if you've not reckoned If you've not reckoned with the seriousness of your sin and laid your life at the feet of Christ to trust him only to forgive your sins, you are still like Simon in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Know this, that it it is truly, and you may disagree, but we'll just have to deal with the fact that we disagree. It is the most loving thing that I can do today or any day to call pretenders to repentance. The most loving thing that Peter and John could do for Simon the magician was to say to him, you're a fake, you're a phony, you don't know Christ, repent today. And it's the most loving thing that I can do to say to you also, friend, you who know you're a fake, you know you're a phony, you've been pretending to be a Christian your entire life, repent today and hear me. I and every other true believer in this room will praise the Lord. We will cry tears of joy over you, over your salvation today. If you'll admit your pretense and you'll sincerely trust Jesus today. Scripture says that that every person who believes causes great celebration in heaven. The Father rejoices. God rejoices when people respond to his grace. And friends, so do we. Even for those who, who may have been pretending for a long time, will rejoice all the more that the truth of the gospel has finally changed your heart, that the truth of the gospel has, has finally revealed, has, has shined a, a light on your soul to show you your need for Jesus in a real way. No more pretending. This is for real today. Yeah. Fourth and finally, just as the preaching of the gospel frames our passage today, we read it in chapter. Uh, 8 verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We read it in 8.25, the end of this passage. When they testified and spoken about the word, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. In the same way that preaching of the gospel frames our passage today, so also must the gospel frame the ministry of every Christian and every healthy church. The good news of God's gift of forgiveness for sins by trusting Jesus must be the heartbeat of your life, Christian. It must be the heartbeat of our church. The gospel is what drives our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for God's glory here at First West. It is the framework. The preaching of the gospel is the framework for all that we do in fulfilling that mission. How are we going to make disciples of Jesus? By preaching the gospel. So church, if we ever endeavor to know God apart from the gospel or to grow as Christians only through moralism and not by the gospel. If we ever endeavor to fix only the physical problems of, for our neighbors and, and of the world and never address their greatest need, which is to have their sins forgiven as a gift of God's grace to be received by faith in Jesus. If ever we try to know, grow, or go as a church or make disciples who know, grow, and go as a church in, in, in any way or with anything else other than the gospel, we will have lost all vision for what it means to be a gospel-driven people. Yeah, the preaching of the gospel must frame the ministry of every Christian and every healthy church. May God let that to be so in this place. Let us pray.